Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. And Mark Petchy uh, returns to the podcast after, I think we spoke earlier in the year in April, and the podcast was, as expected, one of the better-received podcasts that I've done. And his uh, work is, uh, you know, does, doesn't really need any introduction, so I'll just bring Mark right in. Welcome, Mark, to the show once again. Hey, it's great for you to invite me back. It's good to be on. Uh, believe me, a pleasure is all mine. And, of course, the listeners will be, you know, racking up the downloads once this podcast is released. Uh, so, yeah, you've been pretty vocal on the Davis Cup uh, uh, issue on Twitter uh, since it was announced. And now pretty much like the bill has passed and now we have to live with the reality. And this is the last year of the current and the iconic format. Next year, everything changes. So let me start about a very basic question with a lot of fans who are against this model. Uh, uh, does uh, the instigator here, like, is he the football player? But does that really make a difference what his background is? Uh, uh, or does does that part of the decision bother you? No, no. I mean, whether it's Gerard Piquet or it's Lewis Hamilton or it's Tiger Woods, it wouldn't wouldn't bother to me at all. I mean, he's he's the front guy in terms of PR, but he's also part of the the team that have put the money together, the package together. It, that 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 really to me is is that's a bit of a distraction from the the bigger issue. Exactly. So at least we got that squared away. Uh, David Haggerty, I think, spoke uh, with John Wertheim on his uh, podcast, and I uh, listened to you know some of the questions that John presented. And uh, one of the answers David gave to John was uh, they got all the stakeholders involved. And this, to me, is a little confusing. Maybe he answered later in the podcast. I didn't finish the episode yet. But uh, if you got all the stakeholders in- included, but then there are a lot of players who are saying they were not asked about that. So if the stakeholders are federations, uh, that's kind of a mixed message uh, they are sending, don't you think? Uh, hugely mixed message. And I think, <clears throat> as you say, that that is part of the, the wider issue um, and something that obviously, you know, has become part of the narrative is that, you know, they're saying that they did this big consultation. But, you know, as you say, a lot of the a lot of the players uh, would actually love to keep the Davis Cup in its current format. It's It's, I think, for... For fans alike, um, it's the home and away, just the passion that you turn up for for your country as a player, as a fan, um, is is just huge. And it, it was very unique. I think that it got very narrow, the conversation, um, and over overly magnified on the players. And, you know, and I think that people were just so focused on the fact that Roger wasn't playing Novak and Rafa wasn't playing Andy in the Davis Cup. And, you know, we need to get more of this sort of cross-pollination of of the great rivalries we've had in our sport in Davis Cup. But the reality is it's never really happened. And this is what's kind of, you know, the, it's been, for me, it's a bit been a bit myopic, you know, in terms of where the ITF are coming from. Because if you go back and you start looking um, at a lot of the great rivalries that we've had that resonate with people, um, and I, I know you saw today on Twitter that I put it out there, but, you know, you look at people like Boris and Andre and Mack and Borg and Connors and Borg and Sampras and Becker, you know, these big rivalries that we had in our sport. They played 70 matches against each other collectively. One Davis Cup tie between Becker and Agassi in 89. I mean, it was, you know, it, 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 it was nothing. It's always been fairly nothing in terms of the big rivalries playing in Davis Cup. So, the the arguments that I'm hearing, and there's a lovely word for it, um, is blatherskite. And it was one of Mark Twain's cats. Um, and it just means that people are just talking uh, a lot, but they're not really making any sense because one of the arguments is we're going to get all these, 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 these rivalries haven't been happening. Well, they've never been happening. So that isn't a reason to change the Davis Cup. 
No, it's a fair point. I spoke to Mark Nixon uh, earlier in the year when this mandate was proposed, and he said uh, European media is very different than the U.S. media, and Davis Cup was in a very healthy uh, condition as the coverage was great, and uh, you know there were a lot of packed stadiums, and it was never about you know like you said the big three versus you know one of those guys. So, what is the mixed message? Because in the U.S., a lot of time I try to Google that kind of news. I don't get to see even maybe the way Google indexes its uh, you know its content. Uh, but uh, there's definitely a mixed message because you know Steve Darcy, that kind of a guy, is a hero in Davis Cup, and I'm sure he would be not that kind of a hero if Davis Cup is played in say Indian Wells, you know, where in a World Cup format. And uh, how many Belgians would travel there, and would he feel that motivated to perform say against like a higher ranked player like a Burdick? So to well, me, that's totally going against the grain. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think I think that's what I think that's what the concern is: is that we've got this new event, and and I, I'm from where we're all sitting, and you've got to give it a chance. But from where we're all sitting at the moment, there's no guarantee of of this event solving any of the perceived issues. And I say perceived because this whole we're going to get the rivalries, the big rivalries playing Davis Cup, isn't necessarily going to happen for you know because of this. So for me, the downside risk. Um, is far greater than the upside because it hasn't really it hasn't really solved what some people are saying are the problems. Yes, it's making it cheaper because you're putting it all in one place and the and and it's one week and there's the qualifying in February, but it's not really solving what people are trying to say, which is the the loss of the the gravitas uh, of of the Davis Cup. But if you ask the players that are playing in the semi-finals coming up now in the Davis Cup, they're all going to be super pumped up about it you know they're all going to be this 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 could be their Andy Warhol moment in their careers as you say for somebody like Steve Darcy's and how great has Goffin been in Davis Cup I mean you know he has elevated his tennis under the most extreme pressure to to a place that you know he doesn't always find on the tour but every weekend in Davis Cup he's managing to find it and suddenly you see the the caliber of character that somebody like has Goffin has in the Davis Cup. And, you know, that separates him because, yes, he hasn't been, you know, in the mix with the big four, you know, consistently. But that doesn't mean he's not a great player. And these other events like the Davis Cup have given somebody like Goffin a vehicle uh, to shine. And the Belgians, as you say, can come out and, and watch that. And, and a lot of these countries, they don't they aren't in a fortunate position like Britain and everywhere else that has a Grand Slam where people can come. So this is this is their time in the year where where the ordinary fan can come and support their players, you know, and, and find it slightly easier to get tickets and, and, and all of those things. And if you take the, the wide angle lens and pull it back in tennis, because, as I said earlier, you know, we're very myopic at the moment in terms of what we think is right and wrong in our sport. You look at Davis Cup, that's about as healthy as it gets. You can't see a healthier event on a television screen. And I think, uh, Mark, you pretty much segued into my next question. You gave me a platform already, and I was going to ask you, because my original heritage is from India. I live in the States for the last 20-odd years, but I remember my first ever live tennis match was at the DLTA, which is New Delhi Lawn Tennis Association, when India hosted South Korea. And it was electric, because tennis was never coming to those shows. Of course, now we've had the Chennai Open, which is the Pune Maharashtra Open. But back in the day, Davis Cup was the only glimpse we would get international tennis. And I think that's probably true for 70-80% of the tennis playing nations because the tennis market on the tour is very saturated. It's the same countries, the big uh, developed countries that have most of the tournaments. So now I'm being told that a lot of this money of this bucket will go towards those nations and those nations were 
uh, in the 70% voltage that went for it. So I'm not convinced how they are seeing this. Maybe there are numbers that I'm not privy of. But how does small uh, federations like the India, the Turkeys, the South Koreas, you know, how are they seeing this change? Because they will never get to host this kind of a circus. No, no, and I think that you know that you, they'll say that oh, you know, they're going to get more money for the federations and and all of this. But you know, again, the proof will be in the pudding down the line. It's an awful lot of money. Uh, it's an awfully long time, and a lot can go wrong um, in that period of time. So there are no guarantees. We've already been there in '99 with ISL and the ATP, um, and it and it and it felt too good, and ultimately it proved too good. You know, so where where will the ITF and potentially the Davis Cup be if this deal? Um, doesn't proceed for the duration of it, you know. So that's again one of the downside risks potentially for it. But as you say, I mean, these other countries that that are going to need who who would love to have Davis Cup ties in a year, uh, it's not going to. I mean, let, let's be honest. Even in the format that we're going to get going forward, there's going to be six teams that aren't going to play a home and away tie. The four semi finalists from the year before and two parachuted in with marquee names. Uh, teams pr- prior to the quali. So already you've got six countries that are going to lose Davis Cup ties prior to the great jamboree, wherever it ends up being held straight after the World Tour finals. And I, I think from from everybody's perspective, you know, collectively, it just feels as though at the moment in tennis, we just have an incredible amount of organizations that are not communicating in a constructive, coherent way. And if if David Haggerty wants to say that they're speaking to the stakeholders, or well, one of those big stakeholders are the fans. And if the fans, and judging by the reaction from the fans, I, I've I've barely heard anybody say that it's good. I mean, and I'm I mean, we're way down into the sort of two three percent of people voicing an opinion that are saying that they're happy with what's being proposed at the moment and and world cup right it's like the chicken or the egg situation world cup is what it is it was always that model of course you know change sometime can brings you know welcome new additions but just to loosely use that uh model it's not going to work because tennis is an individual sport and the only team association was davis cup where home team and home fans had a lot to say and a lot of those home fans, you know, and it's not easy to travel. And then for the players' point of view, we've been talking about shortening the season and the World Tour Finals, only eight or nine active players extended that week. And now you're asking for a whole lot of players to be playing deeper into the season that's like usually the off time. So, yeah, there are a lot of unanswered questions. It's just like a bunch of people sat down together and I guess uh, they ignored, you know, what the fans are saying because, uh, the, first, the product is part, you know, the players. I talked with Thomas Johansson yesterday and he said players are the product, rightfully so. And then fans are the ones who support their product. So the two most important components, I guess they were not heard. But there are a lot of people in the tennis uh, community, so let's come to that point, who are endorsing this idea, which is fine. We should always have a debate and I will also try to back their points because we don't want to have a one-sided argument. We both are on the same side here. So... Let me ask this. So a lot of tennis coverage that's surrounding this and that's coming from established networks and established voices. Uh, these folks sometimes are just uh, coinciding this with another story that's a best of five set reduced to best of three. So are you seeing that also as an issue? Because not only are they changing the iconic format, they're also tinkering with, you know, uh, because again, logistically, you can't have best of five sets. So I guess I see the point. But this is like, again, uh, a problem that's kind of uh, coming in the same envelope together, uh, uh, giving a different uh, vision for the future. You know, I made this point on commentary yesterday. Um, you know, I love my books. You know, I read uh, Haruki 
Marikama's 1Q84. It's a, it's a phenomenal book, obviously a fictional book. It's 928 pages. I also absolutely adored Gabriel Garcia Marquez's, you know, classic 100 Years of Solitude. It's 422 pages. Um, it's double the length, 1Q84. I loved both books the same. They both... Uh, left a overwhelming impression on me that I my takeaway from from both books was just you know I want to go and read some more I want to find more of the same authors and go and you know understand you know a little bit more about life and 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 the world that they wanted to transport me into and I don't think that's any different to a tennis match as well when I sit down and I watch a match that's fresh from Love All in the first set. I don't know what's going to unravel. I know the characters in the same way I know those two authors particularly well. Um, no different to watching Novak and Roger today in the final of Cincy. Um, we know how they play. We know what they basically do well against each other. Uh, but it's but it's but it's something that I'm going to watch unfold in front of my eyes, and it's going to be different every single time. And um, and I and I love that about our sport. I and I don't think less time on court gives these giants of our game less time to produce magic. So why would we want to take away the ability of these great players to rush through a match for 45 minutes for fans that say they only want to be there for an hour? Because, again, I'm not hearing that from the fans. The people that go and watch tennis matches, they don't. They, they love tennis. They, they want it. Yes, I'm a big uh, fan of having a, a tiebreaker in a fifth set at 6-all. Um, but if if we take away the ability to be on court for a long enough time for for memories to be made for uh, new chapters to these CVs of these Hall of Famers that we've been lucky enough in the last decade and more to to watch, I think we run the risk of sanitizing our sport and actually just making it uh, like fast food. It, 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 it's got no substance. It's it, it's never got. It's never going to have the ability to leave a long lasting lingering effect on you that's actually going to you know is it, that's enough for your year almost to say that match encapsulated everything i love about this sport you can't always read a book as well going back to that analogy that that's fantastic you know you can't always read a book that you absolutely love they don't always um move you in the same way and if we keep focusing on the the numerous matches that 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 don't move us what we're going to end up doing is having more of those and less of the, the the ones that actually get written about for decades to come. Look at look at look at ten years on, and we're talking about obviously Roger and and Rafa's Wimbledon Classic. We'll be talking about that in fifty years. If that's three sets, we're not. No, I think you touch upon something very interesting there, and it's just, it's it's funny that nobody points wants to point this out that you know even on Twitter, I think you have a fair bit of following. I interact with you know. A lot of folks, and I don't know how old they are, but you know, by you know, a lot of people by admission, you can see that they're on the younger side, and they're all uh, they all like the five set format. And in, in 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 real life, I have a lot of friends who are tennis fans, but compared to you and I, they are like casual fans who tune in for the four majors and maybe catch uh, you know a Cincinnati final if they're in the U.S. You know, the same time zone. But you know what? Those guys love the big three or the, those matchups, and they all love the best of five because they are not really watching the best of three side of the tour. So no one is really complaining. Oh, I don't want to watch tennis because Nadal and Federer went into the fifth, or you know, or Djokovic and you know uh, Del Potro are going eight six. They like those matches. So I don't know where that na- narrative is coming from. That's a very good call because everybody's saying it's for the younger generation or the casual fan. Both 
categories are tuning more into majors because we need casual fans for the health of the sport. We, of course, we know not everyone will watch 46 weeks of action and will have tennis channel or tennis TV. We, we get that. But uh, that kind of proves the point uh, even more. The casual folks are tuning in at the majors and they are not saying, oh, you know what? I don't want to watch it because it's best of five. They're liking what they see. They don't know the other alternate even exists because a lot of folks don't watch the tour. So that, to me, defeats the argument right away. I couldn't agree with you more. I just, I, I, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the debates that we seem to be having at the moment are very self-fulfilling. If we keep saying that best of five is terrible, eventually it will go away and we'll be left with a very uh, quick, punchy uh, delivery of our sport that leaves no lasting impression and it will just basically uh, disappear into the ether and, and won't create any headlines. So um, we we need, we need uh, these these tales to be woven into the tapestry of our history. I mean, if we lose our history and tradition in our sport too dramatically, we lose a huge part of, of, of the appeal to be able to, I know that you can't, um, it's not fair really to sort of judge who's the greatest of all time because every, every single era is, is, is very different. But the history of our sport is something that we can at least look back and say, well, what did Rod Laver do? These trailblazers, you know, playing in ice rinks with their feet freezing, stuff like that. That's where we've come from. We never want to, to lose that story. We're going to have a, you know, we have the debate about Novak today winning, winning, you know, his nine Masters thousands. But Ivan Lendl, he, he won nine. Um, in fact, he won 11 in different uh, in venues. But because it wasn't branded in 1990 and... Bercy wasn't uh, a Masters until 1990. People then say, well, you know, this is the first time it's ever been. No, it's been done. Ivan's done it, you know, like, and we need to celebrate these great champions who were the pioneers of our sport far better than kind of trying to push history away and say, well, that was in another era where nobody really, you know, we don't want to be like that anymore. Um, we, you know, we, yes, things change, but I don't think they need to change quite as dramatically as they do. Otherwise, I fear for, I do fear for tennis. No, I think it's uh, very important that you made the Lendl distinction. Of course, you know, Djokovic does it today. It's, it's going to be really special. But again, like you did point out, Lendl has done it before. And even I think Becker won some tournaments uh, that, you know, got delegated. And now, you know, there's no substitution. So, you know, that's always an ongoing uh, conversation. Depends on how far your memory goes and how, how much attention you paid. Okay, I want to bring on... A question here. Uh, I don't know if I can best put it, but uh, I'll start in this way that I'm trying to establish my footing as someone who does podcasting, which is an extension of tennis media, but I'm no way a writer and I'm not as informed as some of you guys. I'm a fan who's improving every day. So the challenge is to tweet about, you know, I have a day job. I do tweet about matches if I can see. If I'm off, I, I am tweeting about them. Uh, but I also noticed like a lot of these big journalists or even a lot of journalists who are covering tennis in this new medium, people are tweeting about, you know, some things that are going on. But I just wonder, like in a good old fashioned way, when a, a journalist was assigned a story and we would read the full description of a match, do journalists even have the span uh, to watch a full match? Because everybody's just like running around giving tweets. But do you sometimes, are we missing the plot? Are we actually capturing the essence of a match, the twist, you know, the changes, uh, the trends, the patterns that got, you know, I know you are on TV or you're calling, so you have to watch a match and you definitely are a true student of the game. But overall, I think the climate has changed. Everybody's just first to tweet about something, but instead of just, you know, covering a match, we're just first, it's a race to release something, breaking news or, you know where I'm going with this? Pressure, yeah, and that's the pressure. And I feel a lot of sympathy towards journalists. You know, I think they have a tough job. We We all know about sort of the print media and how it's, 
changing and, and the pressures that they're under, time deadlines, the the increase in volume of work that they have to push out each day because of because of social media, because of the pressures in that regard. So I think we all we all need to celebrate the great job that the journalists are doing under you know, increasingly difficult circumstances. Um, you know, in, in some ways, it's it's good for them. There's lots of high profile and everything else. But I do also watch them and, and understand that they are under a lot of pressure, particularly at the majors, where there's so many stories going on in the first week to be able to cross everything. And that's not very easy for them to do. So I think you are correct in what you say, is that they see postcards of, of, of tournaments a lot of the time because of the way that their job is now organized. So I think that that, that is part of it. Uh, there's, you know, obviously because of the, you know, the, the, the pressures and the declines in some areas, there's not as many full-time journalists, obviously, uh, certainly here in the UK, since I started playing to now working in the media, you can see how much uh, that's changed in terms of the landscape. So um, there's, there's lots of things. Um, I, I think everyone's trying to do their, you know, trying to do their best. I think one of the stories that kind of, they did try and bring up and it, you know, around the Davis cup vote that I think has probably also got lost in the narrative of us losing it with PK and everything else is why, why if all the stakeholders were involved in this decision and everybody's voice was heard, why was the vote secret? That's a, that's a very uh, important, I think aspect that's missing. And uh, I want to bring this back to the table again, the Davis Cup conversation that we had a few minutes ago. Uh, this also brings uh, to a common fan the governance of tennis. There's ATP, there's WTA, there's ITF. So could, could you think this is also a knee-jerk uh, reaction? Because uh, even though Labor Cup is a, is an exhibition-type format, uh, the news was ATP is launching his World Team Cup. And uh, you think this is also done out of, uh, you know, we don't want to be left behind and let's do these changes quickly and, you know, and uh, and hopefully this works out. You think that's also the mindset? I'm sure they're a little more positive. They're not using the word hope. Yeah. They believe in it, but it's just kind of done very secretively and, uh, you know, not much involvement from other parties. Well, I mean, obviously the ATP had the, you know, player's voice. Um, they obviously wanted to, to do it. The players were asked about various locations, I know, and obviously they chose Australia for understandable reasons ahead of the Australian Open and, and trying to be prepared for it. Um, you know, the bottom line is, is that unfortunately tennis at the moment is um, very divided. It's very divisive. Uh, we have a lot of strong personalities in different governing bodies. I mean, you, you think about it, we, we virtually have seven governing bodies. You know, you have the ATP, you have the WTA, you have the four majors and you have the ITF. Um, you know, so, so you've got to, you know, everybody is fighting for their sort of piece of the pie, the survival. Um, and that's where I kind of find it a bit laughable that they'll say, yeah, but we've, we've consulted all these stakeholders and, and actually the ones that are, are, are really getting, uh, a pretty tough time at the moment of the fans because they're, they're like, well, where do we go? What do we do? We're going to have a Davis cup at the end of next year, then a world team cup straight after that. Um, and, and I think that, you know, hopefully, and, and we keep saying it, that at some point there'll be an inflection point within these decisions that are being made, these different events that are owned by various different uh, management companies and, 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 and people and these properties that possibly that inflection point is heading uh, closer where people go, this is unsustainable. We cannot be fighting against each other to try and show our worth. And actually, collectively, we are better together. Um, you know, you've, you know, I, you know, you've got 
you look at all the players, they're all represented by different management groups. So therefore, their uh, opinions will be very difficult to be aligned all the way through. Their vision has to be slightly distracted by what they're getting told by their various management groups. And, and that's understandable. You almost need a fresh start. Um, is it somebody like Amazon Prime coming in? Um, without any baggage, uh, without any historical ties to our sport, uh, and a, a totally different business that basically just goes, you know what, we're going to buy the WTA, we're going to buy the ATP, um, and we are going to be basically negotiating for the players against the four majors, which would ultimately collectively force the four majors to maybe come together as a unified force. There'd be clearly defined lines in terms of the, the, the various sort of pros and cons for, for both sides. And maybe that would be the thing that happens that would be the most productive that, that could happen. Because right now, and it doesn't matter what anybody says in the sport, and, and if they say that this is for the best of the sport, they can't look themselves in the mirror. You know, they, they're not having a, a, a good sleep, you know, uh, in the evening. Their conscience can't be clear about the way the sport's going at the moment because, because at the moment, it, you know, you've just got too many people with opposing views. Um, and, and that isn't healthy. That's, that's not competition. This is at the moment is rivalries. Um, and they're not the rivalries that you and I want to celebrate those are the ones between the lines. These are the ones off the lines that are other people's sort of power plays. No, very well said. And I think there's another topic, which again, I don't want to get into, but again, even the TV streaming rights. I mean, I subscribe as a user, like for different streaming channels and still a lot of time there's a match that's out there and I don't have that. So again, you know, the leadership is missing a cohesive unit that represents the best interest of the sport because the fans sometimes it's too complicated to have so many different streaming rights because in the u.s you know women's tennis was missing for the longest time for the last year and a half and now there's so many matches that are on tennis channel like even uh yeah so there's uh, this the sport definitely you know needs some revamping i mean it's definitely at a better place i'm not saying all changes are bad so let me talk about the shot clock chain that has been introduced are you a big fan of it or do you think that's something that was not needed and uh where do you draw the line on this change uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm sort of in and out with it, really, to be honest. Um, you know, when I, you know, the 25 seconds, is it nice for the fans? Is it, you know, I think the players struggle with it a little bit. Uh, sometimes, obviously, it feels like the umps can have a little bit of leeway with when they call the score so that it gets reset. Obviously, if you throw the ball up, you get the clock reset on your first serve. I'm, I'm surprised that more players aren't doing that when they're getting rushed just to throw the ball up in the air and then get another 25 seconds. I can't believe it's going to take much longer for, for some players to do it uh, because that's obviously something that's that's available to them. Um, you know, look, I, I, I'm all for the rules. I mean, the rules are there for a reason. I, I just don't want, it, I don't want it to become uh, fixated on it. You know, I'm not quite sure that I love seeing it cut up so much on the TV screen all the time. I know it's new and maybe it will just go away, but... Uh, I don't really think that any when I speak again when I speak to a lot of fans a lot of them a lot of them aren't really that bothered with you know if it's 26 seconds if it's 30 seconds you know Rafa's out there playing they just they, they love the fact that they're just watching him play the, the the time doesn't really seem to be a problem so which which could easily lead you back to are some of the problems that we're discussing um, in the sport and and a lot of this is actually probably more into the future than it is currently with obviously the players we have is some of it the product out there, you know, that, that it's, you know, a lot of the tennis is, is maybe a little samey. There's not quite 
as many individuals that are playing, you know, high risk, different brand of tennis that's that's captivating for the crowd is is that part of the problem? Is it is has it been uh, the uniformity of the surfaces for the last what pretty much twenty years that is now producing too much baseline tennis um, and not enough variety? And is that is that the bigger problem, which is obviously a much bigger issue and a much bigger problem to solve because it's going to take time to uh, uh, make those changes at surfaces at grassroots level um, on the tour for the players to therefore adapt Um, and is that why we're looking at shortening the sport to best of three sets trying to change davis cup into to the the form that it is because actually the underlying problem isn't something that people are are wanting to maybe um address because how do you fix that quickly? Okay, and let's conclude this uh, lively conversation with the scheduling because, you know, scheduling is always discussed on Twitter and between tennis fans and, you know, fandoms get animated and, you know, and, and a lot of times rightfully. So Nadal last week in uh, Toronto played all-night matches. I think Federer did that in 2014. Djokovic had, I think, a late semifinal in Cincinnati and then had to very less turnaround time. So you think scheduling is something dictated by TV? Uh, you think uh, tennis uh, authorities could intervene uh, in those scenarios like Nadal playing all-night match and then just playing a final for the first time in a day match? It's a day tournament, but due to his box office draw, he was playing late night. So these issues, all players have gone through this, especially the top top players. But uh, do you see this as a point or you think, okay, you know, there's still an equal opportunity sport. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And it's a, listen, it's a, it's, a, it's a sport. It's a business. And, you know, as much as we all have utopia and we all can be idealistic and we can all be romantic about how uh, fair uh, life should be, it quite simply isn't. And if you're the tournament director of any tournament in the world and your revenue is coming from television and your sponsors and you want the, the, you want the maximum exposure for those sponsors, for your corporate partners, you are going to put the marquee player who is going to bring that to your tournament at prime time. It is as simple as that. I personally don't think there should ever be an issue. You know, any tournament director that's that's running a uh, you know a tournament has a duty to run it as effectively, efficiently, and as profitably as they can, um, and that's why they're given their job. I don't think we should be criticizing them for doing the right thing by the tournament. Those top players have also earned the right to be stuck at prime time for the sacrifices, talent and winning that they've done. Hey, Mark, that was uh, insightful and you know, uh, brilliant as usual. Thanks for doing this. I know uh, you're a busy man. Uh, yeah, we hope to you know, do this. Always.